4: Hey, welcome back to the show. Rick Tittle with you. And uh, we are all around the world on American Forces Radio Network. We're coming through your computer. Yeah, sportsbyline.com. Just click listen live to hear the show. There's a horrible profile picture of me <laughs> on the website, sportsbyline.com, of when I was on Fox National TV TV. For a uh, MMM result. Uh, and uh, anyway, go there, click listen live. You can hear the shows that way. Any emails, send those along to rick at sportsbyline.com. We're here for you. Uh, we've got uh, Steve Hellman coming up. I think that uh, role was played by um, Ron Perlman. Oh, that's Hellboy. This is Hellman. Isn't Hellman's also like mustard or ketchup or something? I don't know, something East Coast. Uh, we also have uh, Onni Timoner, and uh, she has written a film, uh, Maplethorpe Director's Cut, starring Matt Smith. Matt Smith uh, played the young Prince Philip in uh, The Crown, uh, by the way. Uh, I have a friend in England who says, um, you shouldn't watch The Crown, you should only know about the real stuff. And I'm like, well, I'm not really that into the royals where I have to know everything is perfectly legit. I know that the royal family is against the crown because it gives them, makes them look bad sometimes. But uh, it's sensationalistic. We know that. But it's also kind of accurate, too. Okay. I think the guy's name was Charles. All right. Uh, also, Ken Burns will be on as well. And uh, we'll talk about his new documentary, Hemingway, which he's done with novick florentine films this all comes he and his college buddies uh, started florentine films back in the day at um, back east and uh, one of the guys his hometown was florence that's just where they got the name from it's interesting uh and your calls at 1-800-878-PLAY P-L-A-Y-U. You ain't got no alibi you're ugly tune in app iHeartRadio radio app stitcher app titillating sports with rick tittle on facebook and the twitter is at rick tittle come on back
3: Let me get right back to you. Sandra, um, those banners go out tonight. Can you pack them? Indeed, most unexpected growth can stretch your business thin. On machine four. Like at Monica's print shop, to fulfill orders on time, she needs to get started hiring right, right away. I need Indeed. Indeed you do. And the moment you sponsor a job on Indeed, you get a short list of quality candidates from our resume database. Visit Indeed.com credit and get a $75 credit for your first sponsored job post. Terms and conditions apply.
5: Your outdoor experiences could be better, clearly better. Kanan sunglasses are made exclusively with polarized lenses for optimal clarity. Using Japanese optics, Kanan's lenses are clearer, lighter, and stronger than other lenses. And they're nearly impossible to scratch. With frames handcrafted in Italy, Kanan's sunglasses elevate your experiences outside with a degree of clarity beyond your wildest imagination. Kanan designs and manufactures are high-performance eyewear to be clearly better than any sunglasses you've tried before. Use the exclusive code kanancast 15 at kanan.com to receive 15% off your first pair. That's K-A-E-N-O-N-C-A-S-T-1-5, Kanan.
6: Head to ReliefFactor.com or call 1-800-500-8384. Relief Factor helps to support a healthy response to inflammation and decreases discomfort from the effects of daily living. And you can get yours at ReliefFactor.com or by calling 1-800-500-8384. Your life, your freedom. Get back to living at ReliefFactor.com.
7: Nissan believes you deserve a car that thrills you. So we have to ask, does your car thrill you? When you hit the pedal, do you get something back? A chill in your spine? Goosebumps on your goosebumps? When you take off, do your fingers tighten around the steering wheel? Does your heartbeat in your stomach and your breath catch in your chest? Does driving make you feel alive? Because it should. And if your car doesn't thrill you, ours will. This is the new Nissan.
4: All right, Lawrence. Thank you for that. Welcome back to the show, Rick Tittle, with you, coast to coast and around the globe on American Forces Radio Network. It's our pleasure to welcome to the show Kyle Fiascanaro, and he is here on behalf of Brewers Crackers, a company that uh, he uh, owned it and owns and uh, founded, I should say. And uh, we'll talk about what this is. But first, uh, Kyle, I understand you grew up with your dad owning a bagel shop, and I'm so jealous because I love bagels. How Many bagels did you eat a day when you were growing up? Uh, breakfast, lunch,
2: and pizza bagels for dinner.
4: <laughs>
2: for me, <laughs> there's delicious. nothing
4: as classic as the everything bagel. <laughs> How about you? Uh,
2: yeah, everything um, with some uh, room temperature butter is just the way I go.
4: All right, perfect. So, uh, brewers crackers, look, uh, cracker companies, big deal. Well, yours is a lot different. You don't use recycled food you use upcycled food and it comes from breweries this is very unique tell us more please right so brewers
2: crackers takes upcycled grain from breweries so when brewers make beer uh, they take super high quality grain like barley and wheat that has been sprouted um, and roasted they boil that grain to make a liquid that they can then ferment into beer But after they boil it, they strain that liquid, throwing away all of that grain that they spent all that money and all that energy making, um, and then they keep the liquid and make beer. What I want is that valuable byproduct, which is called, in the industry, spent grain, which I call upcycled grain, and And make our crackers with it.
4: it. it just so happens that this isn't waste. This is actually tasty stuff.
2: Right it is I'm a chef at heart uh, or by craft, um, so anytime I see an ingredient um, that can add value, um, in this case, flavor, and then in an environmental case, uh, it would be food waste. So we're adding value by adding flavor and um, taste, and then just trying to just not waste what we grow and what we
4: use. Now, on the one hand, I'm sure a lot of people will talk about, hey, this is so great. This is so sustainable. But what about people who don't understand the process and they kind of feel like you're using like used sink water or something? They're like, eh, it's been used. I don't want that used crap. Do you have to kind of, you know, get over that and educate people about what this is? Right.
2: Uh, I do. I think it's most people like to learn. A little bit about something, and I feel like once you tell them that the grain that I'm using is coming from a craft brewery, um, they kind of associate craft breweries with high quality. Um, So if you can kind of get that to them that I'm using a super super high quality product, um, that's maybe not garbage, but I just you know leftover leftover from the brewing process. Um, It's kind it's an easy concept to get over. Yeah,
4: I know that. Just in the United States, there's over a billion pounds of the spent grain every year, and a lot of that's going to go to landfills as well. Has anybody, to your knowledge, ever tried to use this spent grain before, like as feed for cattle or or as fertilizer or anything else? Yeah,
2: so very commonly in the uh, industrial brewing process, the grain that gets purchased for these breweries is often contracted out before it even gets brewed. So that means that the brewery has arranged for all of this waste product to go to a large feedlot for pigs or cattle. Um, And there's an infrastructure that exists for that grain, but what I'm focused on is using that high-quality grain that craft brewers are using as the backbone of their beer. Um, And with more and more craft breweries popping up in not just, you know, neighborhoods but like cities you know um each city might have 50 60 craft breweries within city limits so those breweries they don't really have an outlet um to get this grain to animals which is a perfectly fine way to get rid of it um but i'd like to say arguably we are the most important animal
4: around <laughs> yeah i would tend to agree with you a couple more uh, <laughs> questions uh for kyle fiascanaro and and I guess, you know, speaking of cities, you're in Brooklyn one day and you see this quote-unquote garbage being thrown out and you basically said, well, that's the best smelling garbage I've ever smelled, right?
2: Yeah, I was riding my bike to work as a cook at a restaurant in Brooklyn and that brewery shared a wall with a Jewish bakery um, and it was just the grain sitting outside the brewery smelling so good and then that bakery was just baking bread and that smelled so good and I was going to work to you know cook all day and I was like "Uh, this is a home run I have to make something with this Um, and not a baker um, by trade but I'm a cook and I could figure things out so took it back to the kitchen and crackers were great people liked them and I just made them every restaurant I worked at until I started Brewer's Crackers.
4: I remember reading the diary of Samuel Pepys, and this goes back like 500 years in London, but (laughs) he would wake up in the morning, and he would go to the pub, and he would have a beer for breakfast. It was sort of considered bread, and in a way, that's what you're kind of getting at, right?
2: Right. So brewers just don't use random grain to brew beer. Um, They use malted grain. So malting just means that it's sprouted um, so that the grain... Can let go of its proteins um, and its sugars, and then it's roasted for flavor. Um, and that's why a light beer is light and a dark beer is dark. Um, those bready, crackery, sometimes like caramel, biscuit, um, coffee like flavors are expressed in the grain. So, yeah, I see what you're saying. It's like a lot like bread.
4: So, it's one thing to say, hey, this shouldn't be wasted. I can make crackers. It's another thing to get venture capitalists and, and, you know, (laughs) supermarkets and this isn't something that happens overnight. So how did you get this off the ground?
2: Right. I started by just making the products. Um, I, I just know if it's not going to exist if you don't make it. Um, so I made some prototypes, put them in some bags and the sandwich shop that I was working at at the time, um, said they would sell them. Um, I got to make them, they got to sell them. So that was a pretty pretty great relationship um, for letting me use their kitchen for free. Um, And that grew into me going to a cheese shop and saying, hey, I got these crackers, they might be good for your your customers, might want to serve them with cheese. Um, And then, you know, one cheese shop sees another cheese shop, sees another cheese shop, and then I have a small little wholesale business. Um, And then it just kind of snowballs from there.
4: Now, have you shaken the industry? Do you have to watch out for a hitman from Ritz?
2: <laughs> um, I think I'm pretty small, small fish compared to them. <laughs> um, but yeah, the goal—the goal with Brewers Crackers, the end—the end goal is to get my products into everyone's hands. So I don't really see those guys as competition. I see them as just like a benchmark. You know, that's where I want to go. I want the concept of upcycling um, and fighting food waste to be in every pantry um, in everyone's house. So, the goal. So fin- <laughs> finally, how do
4: we get a hold of them?
2: Uh, you can get the crackers, and I do make chips now also. I make pita chips at BrewersCrackers.com, and they're also available on Amazon.
4: There he is, Kyle Fiasconaro, a great story of American ingenuity and uh, ingenuity, I should say, and the coining of a new phrase, upcycling, as well. Kyle, congratulations, and uh, let's catch up down the road, man. Thanks for having me. All right, I'm Rick Tittle. We'll take a quick break. We'll talk some sports. Come on
9: back.
0: 1759.
9: I wish you would try and slap Rick Tittle's mama's face. He would clown you.
4: Oh, some great baseball stories going on. I talked about uh, Akili Badu of the Tigers yesterday. What a debut for Badu, especially against his his old team that left him available from Rule 5 uh, as well. Uh, We also have the case of uh, Jonathan India, the way he's gotten started for the Reds. About the Reds scoring 25 runs in 24 hours. That's pretty amazing. They called this kid Jonathan India with a name like that. You'll always remember him. Indiana Jones, I'm sure people call him. But Jonathan India, three for three with four RBIs, pretty good debut. Young Nate Lowe. Uh, who the Rangers got from the Rays over the winter. He already has three home runs. He's batting over 300. Uh, this guy's uh, Zach McKinstry of the Dodgers playing at, at the second base. And you think about Jock Peterson, who finally got a hit, a home run for the Cubs, and they gave him a waffle iron. But they let him walk. They let Kike G- Hernandez walk. And so this guy McKinstry, it's like, who the hell is that? He started three games uh, so far. and he has six hits and six RBI. Jermaine uh, Mercedes, 28-year-old rookie, the first player in modern history to begin a season with eight consecutive hits. And uh, he didn't come out of nowhere, as you might imagine. He's 28 years old, but you think about a long rate and a reward. A lot of good stories so far in baseball, and the A's won a game. Even though they're closing Rosenthal might be out for half the season. But also, a couple days ago, Forbes released their uh, valuations for all 30 MLB teams. And this was something that a lot of people were curious to see because of the pandemic. How many teams really lost money? How many teams not? How much has their valuation plummeted? Do you know how many teams had their valuations plummet? None of them. In fact, 29. All but the Tampa Bay Rays who stayed level gained value. The Tampa Bay Rays, by the way, who are the lowest valuated team, 1.055 billion. So every big league team is now worth at least a billion. That's what they were worth in 2020. And now in 2021, Forbes says that Tampa Bay has held exactly the same place. Every other team is worth more. <clears throat> now, you could say, Rick, uh, what's that got to do with the price of apples? That's like saying, well, my home gained value, but my home gained value, but I have less revenue coming to the coffers. The only way to cash in on that would be to sell the team. Uh, and I, I do get that point. But on the other hand, it's not denying the fact that your team is worth more money the new york yankees continue to be the most valuable franchise at five billion dollars once again the yankees at five billion now this takes into equation their building second the top five round out is dodgers red sox cubs giants the giants before this century were always in the bottom half of these type of lists because they played at Candlestick Park. Now that they own their own ballpark, a ballpark that has hosted an all-star game, that has hosted several bowl games, XFL, concerts, and OES 4 World Series as well, one they lost and then they won the next three, Uh, that is part of the valuation. So if you're a team out there thinking, you know, what would a new building do for me? Why don't you ask the Giants what a new building uh, does for them? Um, Now, Rob Motti of the Associated Press said in November that the Phillies lost $145 million, which the Phillies want to jump up and down and say, oh, we lost money, we lost money, we lost money. Well, Forbes says that the Phillies have now broken the $2 billion mark. So it just depends who you want to listen to. How many churros have you sold? Right? <laughs> that type of thing. By the way, speaking of the Giants, if you want to go to the game tomorrow, you have to pass a COVID test. And you have to show proof that you passed it. And the Giants are only uh, one of two teams that are doing that right now. You cannot just walk up <clears throat> and walk in. That ain't going to happen. That's not how we do it anymore. <laughs> So say what you want about that. And the whole vaccine passport idea, that's un-American. There are certain ways. What's un-American about just proving you don't have a disease? I don't know. I don't really see that. But uh, anyway, the whole COVID thing, uh, to get into a giant's game, you now have to have proof within 72 hours. That's a pretty wide gap, by the way. You can go out and do something dumb in 72 hours. But just to reiterate, these teams who say, you know, we've lost money, we've lost money, Forbes says, well, you've gained. Now, speaking of COVID-19 and how it affects sports, it was announced today uh, at uh, the French Open will be postponed one week. And uh, it'll be scheduled to start now on May 30th and go till mid-June. France, if you didn't know, is in its third nationwide lockdown. And the president, Emmanuel Macron, says that the lockdown should end middle of May. And he says um, that the best solution to get more fans into Roland Garros would be uh, to push it back a week. The president of the French Tennis uh, Association, Gilles Moraton, he said, Quote, I am delighted that the discussions with public authorities, the governing bodies of international tennis, our partners and broadcasters, and the ongoing work with the WTA and ATP have made it possible for us to postpone the 2021 Roland Garros tournament by a week. It will give the health situation more time to improve and should optimize our chances of welcoming spectators at Roland Garros into our newly transformed stadium that now covers more. Then 30 acres for the fans, the players, and the atmosphere. The presence of spectators is vital for our tournament, the spring's most important international sporting event. Well, I don't know about that, but I always love the French Open playing on the clay, sliding around on the clay. Your socks, you have to throw them away when they get so caked with clay. The ball bounces just a little bit lower. Roland Garros, by the way, was a fighter pilot in World War I who was shot down near the end of the war. They named the stadium after him. I was in Paris in 1985 at the end of May um, during the uh, French Open, and I played high school tennis. And my friend who I was with played high school tennis, and he said, let's go to the French Open. And we were only in Paris for a couple days, and I had bigger fish to fry. And um, I kind of wish I had gone now, but I was 19. Kind of wish I had gone. But I said, uh, you know, I'm going here, I'm going there. You go and we'll meet up later. (laughs) And My buddy said, I don't want to go by myself. I'm like, why not? I can go to the École Militaire and the Louvre and the Musée d'Orsay and the Musée de Beaux-Arts, all this other stuff. You know, Notre Dame. I got got stuff on my list. You go to the French Open and then come back and, and tell me about it. And instead, I had to drag his ass all over Paris, uh, going, (laughs) I'd go into all the things I wanted to go to. And then (laughs) when we got back to America, uh, someone asked us, hey, did you go to the French Open? And my friend said, I wanted to, but Rick wouldn't let me. (laughs) I wouldn't let you. How old are you? I told you to go ahead and go. Anyway, that's an aside. So. normally you would say does pushing back a week really matter well they think it does remember the tournament last year was supposed to happen at this time and uh it got pushed back to the fall and uh, when it finally was played rafael nadal won his 13th french open and iga sviatek won the french open title for the ladies and this right here shows you why Tennis isn't as hot as it used to be. Iga Swiatek. Nothing against her. uh, Someone who uh, is a, you know, deserving uh, champion, but not a name that, uh, you know, Madison Avenue would uh, jump on. Um, By the way, when she won it, what was she, 18 years old? She's from Poland, by the way. You got to love the name Iga, I-G-A. That's a pretty cool name. and at that time, there were 1,000 fans at Roland Garros. So I would love to see, you know, as much as the vaccine's coming out here, these other countries start to get the vaccine. It's going to affect us in the United States. It's going to affect everybody. Everybody has to get the vaccine. And I know the third world, uh, they always get everything last, which is messed up, obviously. But uh, as, as as much as these people, these turkeys over in Europe, they have to get vaxxed too, so we can go back over there and hang out, right? Huh? Huh? All right. Coming up next, we will have filmmaker Ondi Timoner talk about Maplethorpe, the director's cut. I'm Rick Tittle, come on back.
6: Head to ReliefFactor.com or call 1-800-500-8384. Relief Factor helps to support a healthy response to inflammation and decreases discomfort from the effects of daily living. And you can get yours at ReliefFactor.com or by calling 1-800-500-8384. Your life, your freedom. Get back to living at ReliefFactor.com.
9: I'm so disgusted by Rick Tittle that I find him very intoxicating.
4: Welcome back to Sports Byline USA, coast to coast, and around the world on American Forces Radio Network. It's our pleasure to welcome to the show film director Andi Timoner, and she's here to talk about uh, her film, Maplethorpe: The Director's Cut, which is now available on all digital platforms from Samuel Goldwyn Films. Andy, welcome to the show. You know, it's funny. I remember the first time I heard about Maplethorpe. My brother was renting an apartment in Noe Valley in San Francisco, and um, he was renting it from a, a gay couple. And they had a, at least a dozen huge Maplethorpe pictures that were very ex- uh, explicit. And I was thinking at the time, oh, well, that's interesting. But coming from here, it wasn't a huge shock. But I think the Bible Belt and other places around so the nation, some of the pictures he took uh, did quite, uh, cause quite a stir, to say the least, didn't they?
12: Uh, yeah. Yeah, was, <laughs> I, I think he's probably, yeah, I mean, according to friends of mine who, who have uh, work on Capitol Hill or work with Capitol Hill to try to unlock funding for the arts, the NEA still quotes Maplethorpe as the reason that it's difficult to get funding allotted for the arts. Because they supported that perfect moment show that he did, uh, post almost posthumously in 1989, where you know uh, the director of um, the art gallery in Cincinnati was led away in handcuffs, uh, Dennis Berry, for for actually showing Mapplethorpe's work. Um, so yeah, it it stirred quite a bit of controversy in this country.
4: You know, it's funny. I remember Pat Buchanan when he was trying to get the Republican nomination from. George H.W. Bush, he showed um, uh, clips from the Gay Pride Parade in San Francisco, and he said, the National Endowment of the Arts, look what Bush supports. And I'm like, I don't know if Bush was actually in the Pride Parade, but I remember that was a huge contention. Like, look what the NEA is spending its money on.
12: Yeah. Yep. But, you know, Mapplethorpe set out to make photography itself a collectible art form and actually succeeded in doing that by taking uh, very controversial work and uh, work that, you know, at that time in the sixties and seventies and even eighties was considered the underworld, you know, it was like deemed obscene. And he took, took that and turned it into, you know, took people from that world and brought them into his studio and photographed them like uh, sculpture and, and showed us the form and the shape and the beauty that he saw. And um, and in so doing, you know, really made it undeniable. And and that's you know, it's like a Rodin or a Michelangelo. And um, and and suddenly there's a man in all leather, a gimp, you know, um, who is on a museum wall. And and that's that's quite a feat if you think about it historically and in context of culturally where we are able to sit as a as a country, you know.
4: No doubt, and he was to me as a west coast guy he was so new york and the fact that he had a long relationship with patty smith and could you get more like just east village gritty performer than patty smith i mean it's it seemed like they would be like a the ultimate new york couple huh
12: but there might not have been even a patty smith it you know without robert maplethorpe or vice versa because they were lone wolves in this world when they met and helped each other through as children. Um, they were supportive of each other's work before there was anyone supporting them. Um, they were the only two people who understood each other. And there's that scene in the film where they're in bed and just, you know, nobody understands and nobody sees the world the way we do. You know, he says to her, um, they felt like that. And so it was very painful um, for both of them when he discovered, you know, that he was gay. Um, which was not something that he knew necessarily consciously because of the time and because he was raised in the Catholic church and came from such a religious family. And ultimately it meant that they weren't going to be able to be life partners. And that was really, really tragic for them.
4: No doubt. We're speaking with uh, Andy Timoner, the new film Maperthor, the director's cut is available now on demand. Um, It's one thing to, you know, take pictures of the, the human form and all its grace and beauty. But once he f- discovered the mine shaft, which was the, the BDSM, the, the, the uh, bondage uh, sex leather club, I guess you would call it in, in Manhattan, how did the pictures and his, uh, his art turn uh, at that point?
12: Well, he, he actually wasn't a photographer. Um, and if you watch the film, you can see why. Uh, he wasn't a photographer for the, for the you know, first couple decades of his life. Um, and I, I sort of extrapolated that as the director and writer of the film. But I think there's a lot of validity in why he wasn't holding a camera for some years. He was actually doing collage and that kind of thing. And then when he moved into the Chelsea Hotel, he was given a Polaroid camera. Uh, by a woman named Sandy Daly. And he just loved taking pictures, almost like a documentary filmmaker. He, and this is sort of how I related to him, he would run into these places like the mineshaft. And with standing behind the camera, he could like mediate that world a little bit. It was almost like a safety safety net, but also uh, a bridge into worlds he could never otherwise enter. And so he became uh, incredibly obsessed with that world. And that was very intrinsic to his work. I mean, it wasn't like, Oh, he was taking pictures of flowers and then he discovered BDSM and transition. No, that was his entry drug, you know, into photography. Um, that's what he started photographing from the beginning. So, yeah. Is he also,
4: I mean, you think about Van Gogh, he's probably the best example, but just someone who maybe was more appreciated posthumously than during his own time.
12: Well, he was because of the controversy. I mean, I think people didn't really know who he was until he was not people. I mean, a lot of people did. He was, he was famous and he was wealthy, uh, you know, successful and living in the 23rd street loft before he died in the eighties. In 1989, he passed away from AIDS. Um, But, but it was that show that came out that same year that closed, you know, caused the Corcoran gallery to close in Washington and, and and Dennis Barry led away in handcuffs, and and Jesse Helms screaming in the Congress. You know, that put Maplethorpe in all headlines everywhere, and suddenly the curiosity about him grew, you know? So, so yeah, he reached levels of fame that he never might have attained without that show, which combined the full range of his work from flowers to, you know, the most extreme, um, ex-portfolio, as he called it. And and that, that was his dream. That was his dream always. You know, you see in the movie with Matt Smith's brilliant performance when he is, you know, a younger man and he's with, uh, not that he was ever old. He died at 42 years old. But uh, when he was, you know, coming up with Sam Wagstaff and, and going and seeing Holly Solomon, a dealer in, in New York, about doing a show, and she said, well, I could never show these two these two photographs in the same show. And he said, show all my work or none of it. And Sam, his then partner, um, who really enabled him to become who he was by giving him a Hasselblad and introducing him to the art world. Uh, Sam convinced him to do a show you know, at Holly Solomon's gallery and then do simultaneously a show downtown at the kitchen gallery, uh, with, for all his leather stuff, um, and with all his leather fans. And so he, you know, he had two shows that same night. That was as close as he ever got to all of his work being shown together until the perfect moment, um, which was a game changer for the
4: art. Right. Yeah. yeah. Last last question for you. You mentioned Matt Smith, and it, it's amazing to me how English and Irish actors play Americans better than we do. And, and of course, I we all got to see him um, as a young Prince Philip in The Crown and some other great works as well. What, why was he... Your ultimate—I mean—he's a great actor, but what was it about him that uh, he got the cast for that?
12: So he—this is pre-crown that I cast him, um, and and he wasn't necessarily financeable as the lead actor of a film, um, especially a film about such a controversial artist that was hard to fund in the first place. But his performance, his reading was jaw-dropping. It was literally he was Maplethorpe and that's what you want to do when you're casting a film is you want to cast somebody who is as, you know, has the traits and characteristics of the person they're portraying. Cause then the margin's not that wide that you have to reach, you know, and they can kind of access different points in their personality and bring it forth. And Matt, you know, he was, he had this mercurial tension, this gravitas as well um, that really, I, from everything that I had researched, and I had, you know, I had worked at the Maplethorpe Foundation and had the rights for for a decade. So um, I was very steeped in Maplethorpe, and this was who I was looking for. It was like a dark prince, you know. And so the director's cut, which is a different cut than the official release, is the original cut. And I want to make sure that your listeners understand that this is the cut that I made. This is a complete story. And it sits, you know, on platforms next to the other cut, and you should check out the director's cut, because that's the one that really shows Matt and Patty all the scenes I shot of, of them together, and as well as him as a child in the Catholic Church and the rift that he has with his father that drives quite a bit of his work and all of his aesthetic. Um, we really wouldn't have the iconography we have with Maplethorpe without the, the Catholic Church, um, which he— Worshipped at once and also felt very alienated by. So.
4: Um, it's Maplethorpe, uh, yeah. the director's cut from Samuel Goldwyn Films. It is available now, video on demand, written and directed by our guest, Ani Timoner. Um, congratulations on the film. Great to have you on, and uh, let's catch up on uh, down the road. Okay, sounds good. Thank you so much. All right, thank you. I'm Rick that We'll take a quick break, and we'll come on back on Sports Violet. Who
3: do you think you are? I'm gonna get my love
1: Paid for by Airtime Media.
6: Here's a great way to save money on your prescription medications. If you take Viagra or Cialis, we can give you a way to pay as little as $2 a pill. Call Pharmacy Shop 24-7 to get generic versions of Viagra or Cialis for as little as $2 a pill, plus free discreet shipping.
1: 800-709-4409. 800-709-4409. 800-709-4409. That's 800-709-4409. Do you
0: own an annuity, either fixed rate, indexed, or variable? You get annuity do's and don'ts for baby boomers and the annuity rate report, both absolutely free for calling Annuity General today. Hurry, supplies are limited. Call now. 800-760-1845. 800-760-1845.
1: 760 1845
4: That's 800-760-1845. I joined the Army
8: because my father and my brother were in the Army. I thought I'd better join before I got drafted.
1: Son, uh, there ain't no draft no more. There
10: was
9: one? Always goes commando.
4: Ah, uh, thank you for that, and uh, welcome back to the show. We still have another hour to go, and uh, coming up in the next hour, we're going to have Steve Hellman, writer-director of the new film *Taking the Fall*, and then at eleven forty, it's going to be exciting to have Ken Burns with us. And Ken Burns, of course, one of the great documentarians uh, of all time. All time, baby. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> all right. Um, Yesterday, the Brooklyn Nets announced that uh, James Harden was going to be out uh, 10 days uh, with a, a hamstring injury. And um, that news, of course, you never want to lose an MVP. But they got another MVP back because they got Kevin Durant. And the headlines were, Kevin Durant, perfect from the field. I guess five for five. And that's good. I mean, five for five. Eh, okay, probably from the field. But um, he was announced in the starting lineups, and then they pulled him uh, for whatever reason. They didn't put him in until the second quarter. And it's only, the by the way, the second time in his career he didn't start a game in which he played. Um, and he had six turnovers, which isn't super surprising considering he hadn't played a game for nearly two months. I mean, it was February 13th, the last time he played an NBA game. And... You know, coming off that Achilles where he missed a whole year and he started off the season just as good as he's ever been. And now he's missed another two months. Uh, but playing New Orleans, a pretty dominant 139-111 win um, for, uh, I want to say, New Jersey, for Brooklyn. But <clears throat> just think about it. With, without Durant, for nearly two months, they are still the best team in the East. Now, it's a half game over Philly, and Milwaukee's hanging around. But other than that, there's just a chasm. It's Brooklyn, Philadelphia, and Milwaukee, and then just everybody else. I mean, if you look at Charlotte, Atlanta, Miami, Boston, Boston's 500 at this point. You know, other than that, everybody's sub. And then in the West, though, the West really has six good teams and if you want to throw Dallas in there, seven good teams. It's always a mess. And once again, Utah has the best record in the league. But think about this. The Phoenix Suns have a better record than the Brooklyn Nets. The Phoenix Suns are 36-14. and 14. You talk about bringing in a vet like Paul and what he can do to a team. I mean, it's, it's pretty remarkable. Uh, my Warriors right now with a two-game lead <laughs> over New Orleans for that 10th play-in spot. And do I want the Warriors to make the playoffs? Hell yeah, I do. It would probably be best if they don't make it for a few years. and I, I'm not going to live forever. I'm not, you know, Methuselah. So, yeah, I'd like to see them make the playoffs after being the worst team in the NBA last year. All right, uh, hard news break. Come on back for hour number three. I'm Rick Tittle. We'll see you in a second on SportsBot.
12: USA Radio
9: News with Lance Pride. At least one person is missing and eight others were injured early Thursday morning following an explosion and massive two-alarm fire at Yunkin Majestic Paint Factory in Columbus, Ohio. Some of the injured are in critical condition. The cause of the explosion wasn't immediately known. President Biden will nominate David Chipman, a prominent figure from a gun control group, to lead the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. Prior to this possible role, Chipman was a special agent for the ATF, The agency has not had a permanent director since 2015. Amazon, which has done as much as any company to bring about the demise of shopping malls in the United States, has come full circle by buying up struggling malls and turning them into distribution centers for its rapidly growing e-commerce empire. Between 2016 and 2019, Amazon converted about 25 shopping malls into distribution facilities. USA Radio News.
8: Woke culture. It's choking America, erasing our history, threatening our freedoms, our laws, and even our police. Now, Grant Stinchfield exposes the secret woke agenda and the hidden players behind this very dangerous movement. Watch Stinchfield tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern on Newsmax TV as he reveals the real dangers to you and your family. Everyone is talking about Stinchfield. Because each night he gives you the cold, hard truth you need to know. Newsmax is now America's fastest-growing cable news channel on all major systems. If you don't get it, call your cable operator. Tell them you want Newsmax or you'll switch. Remember, you can get Newsmax free on Roku, YouTube, Zumo, Pluto, Amazon Fire, and smart TVs like Samsung, Sony, Vizio, or LG. It's even free on your smartphone. Just download the free Newsmax app and start watching. So find out about Woke and its dangerous plans for America on Grant Stinchfield tonight. Just tune into Newsmax TV. It's real news for real people.
9: As the border crisis continues to deteriorate, Dan Naraki from the Ohio USA Radio News Bureau reports.
7: Illegal crossings on the southern border are at a 15-year high, according to Border Patrol data. Republican lawmakers say that the current surge is because of President Biden's reversal of the voter policies of the previous administration. Congressman Michael McCall says the result has been a humanitarian crisis. The Texas Republican tells Fox News that cartels and smugglers have taken advantage of families looking to get to the United States.
6: By rescinding the uh, political asylum agreements we had with Mexico to remain in Mexico and Central American countries, uh, we kept these applicants outside the United States. The reversal of that policy under the Trump administration, with Biden reversing these policies, he has created a a, a boondoggle for the traffickers where they exploit these children, Mm -hmm. they separate them from their parents in in, uh, Central America, and take them up this very dangerous journey.
9: Thanks for spending some time with us this morning. We are USA Radio News. Could an ancient mystery be determining the events of our time? Could it reveal the secret of our future? Are recent events a warning that we are approaching judgment? How much time do we have left? Author Jonathan Kahn releases the book that reveals what could not be revealed until now. His newest New York Times bestseller, The Harbinger 2, The Return. Embark on an epic journey to uncover the mysteries and revelations that are changing the world and will change your life. Available online and wherever fine books are sold. As the border crisis continues to deteriorate, sexual assault claims are being made at a children's holding facility in Texas. Dan Rockey from the Ohio USA Radio News Bureau reports.
7: Texas Governor Greg Abbott is calling on the Biden administration to shut down a facility holding migrant children in San Antonio after state authorities received a number of complaints about conditions inside. The allegations include sexual assault, underfeeding the children housed at the facility at Freeman Coliseum, and those who have tested positive for COVID not being separated from others. Governor Abbott says the children in the facility need to be moved to better equipped federally run facilities.
8: The administration failed to plan for the influx of children that they invited to come. Now they face allegations of despicable child abuse and neglect. This must end. The Biden administration must act now.
7: This facility should shut down immediately. Abbott says the Texas Rangers are investigating the allegations.
9: Neither President Biden nor Vice President Kamala Harris is scheduled to intervene at the border crisis Thursday. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas will visit two Texas border towns today. All of the nation's school kids should be back in the classrooms by the fall, the head of the Center for Disease Control and Prevention said Wednesday. September 2021 is their target for brick-and-mortar schools and children to reunite. It's being reported 80% of teachers in America have been vaccinated with at least one shot of the vaccine. For USA Radio News, I'm Lance Pry.
4: so much and welcome back to another live edition of titillating sports with rick tittle it's great to have you with us whatever's going on in your sporting world coast to coast border to border we're here for you and uh, whichever way you'd like to get in uh, we would love to hear from you as well um emails rick at sports here's one real quick from scott saying uh rick if you had to make the choice would you want otani to just pitch or just hit um well i think obviously i would say at this point just hit but if you're the angels you would say just pitch because they need pitching more than they need hitting and if he truly is an ace like the ace of the staff then i would rather have him pitch And the other day he hit 100 on the gun and then he hit a home run. I mean, that's the guy they were looking for. That was the, you know, the the young Japanese Babe Ruth that uh, we were talking about when he was coming out. But uh, luckily for them, they don't have to pick just yet. But, uh, I mean, he he really belongs in the National League (laughs) because he would be able to hit, uh, uh, you know, for himself but whatever he's still going to get a lot of ab's one of the more exciting players in the Binglings when he's healthy 1-800-87-a play um you know charlie mentioned matt chapman i've been down on him because he was awful last year and he got off to a horrible start he actually had a couple of hits yesterday and and it was just nice to see because the guy has a world of potential he really does he just needs confidence he needs coaching up and he just needs to get it done. That's what it is. He needs to get her done. When they threw him in the home run derby in the all-star game, it was stupid. That should have been Matt Olson. I think they got the wrong Matt. I even though Chapman hit over 30 home runs, he's not a home run hitter, per se, like BP-wise. He's a line drives guy. That's me. Line drives. All right. Uh, Steve Hellman's going to join us on the other side, writer, director of Taking the Fall. And then, as I mentioned, Ken Burns, the great documentarian, will hear, be here to talk about his uh, new PBS documentary called Hemingway. Which is about Marielle? No, it's about her grandfather, Ernest. Ironbark, come on back on byline.
0: Time for your small business report presented by Dell Small Business. When you hire someone, you should actually expect a temporary increase in your workload instead of immediately being able to offload responsibilities and have the free time you dream of. That's because even if you make the smartest hires in the world, they're not going to understand and acclimate to your business right away. They're going to need time to learn the ins and outs and to understand your expectations. So be sure to allow the time it will take to train them well, and then you will get that break you deserve. And that's your Dell Small Business Report.
9: What do you get when you talk to a Dell Technologies advisor? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You get someone who understands there's an art to listening. hmm uh-huh. Sure. Who's able to hear more than what's being said and can provide tailored mm-hmm. small business solutions that make you feel okay. truly heard.
3: I understand. Let's get started.
9: For advice on everything from laptops to the cloud and solutions powered by Intel vPro platform, Call an advisor today at eight seven seven ask Dell.
8: I don't even recognize myself anymore.
9: I'm really worried about him. His addiction. I haven't seen him like this, ever.
8: Hey, look. I, I never wanted to start using. I, I knew the drill, but I was out of options.
10: I just want to tell him it's not your fault. There are people out there who can help.
1: Call Quit Drugs 321 now at 800-338-6906. 800-338-6906. That's 800-338-6906. Paid for by the Detox and Treatment Helpline.
8: Hey travelers, do you want to save money on your next flight? Then pick up the phone and call. That's right, call. Because the best prices are not online. They're with SmartFares. See, SmartFares has special deals with the airlines. Also, save up to 50% off business and first class tickets.
1: 855 325 1780. 855 325 1780. That's 855 325 1780. Titillating Sports with Rick Tittle. Rick
4: Tittle is a genius. The best show ever. He's so wonderful. Genius. The best show ever. He's so wonderful. Titillating sports with Rick Tittle. Rick Tittle is a key so handsome. He's a genius. Thank you for that. Welcome back to the show. Rick Tittle with you coast to coast and around the globe on American Forces Radio Network. It's our pleasure to welcome to the show now filmmaker Stephen Hellman. He has a new movie coming out tomorrow, Video On Demand. It's been very well received at many film festivals. It's called Taking the Fall. He wrote it. He produced it. And uh, Stephen, welcome to the program. When you write and produce it, you really, uh, you know, this is your baby. So how much do you stay fluid with the script? And how much are you sort of chained to the script when you go through making it?
10: Yeah. Hey, Rick. Uh, uh, Thanks for having me. And yeah, it's been a, you know, because of the film being such an you know, an ensemble piece and, you know, really character driven, I was, you know, as the writer, I was super, you know, open to collaboration and, you know, with the actors, you know, having Monroe Chambers, Roland Buck and everyone did a great job. But, you know, when you have talented actors like that, you kind of need to sort of let them sort of, you know, do their thing and sort of allow them to kind of take their characters and make them their own as well. So, you know, I'm not a, I'm a very collaborative. I just wanted, you know, the best product I could. So I was very flexible with that. And, you know, it was great to kind of see them take these sort of characters that I made and and take them to a new level.
4: Very cool. I'll just read the quick blurb on the plot. Tyler Richards returns from a six-year prison sentence to a surprise reunion with his former college friends, only to discover that they've nearly all veered off course under the pressure of millennium culture. So it's interesting, the pressure of millennial culture, does that have to do with being woke, being politically correct, being a TikTok star? Well, what does this mean for you to say millennial culture?
10: Okay, well, I yeah, I, you know, I kind of hate the I hate TikTok. I'm just not into that. But, you know, <laughs> to me it was more it's more about um sort of you know growing up as someone that has you know i would certainly say you know white privilege in the fact that you know i grew up in a middle you know class area suburbs of pennsylvania and a lot of my peers you know we've all had you know good opportunities you know i would say about two-thirds of my high school went to college no problem so seeing sort of the adulthood of millennials we we have been through two recessions we you know have student debt we have problems but on the other side of the coin there you know we have so much freedom and flexibility to do things that we want to do but we make these excuses and some are are certainly valid you know student loans and all that those, those are things that that can hold you back from doing things but I really wanted to you know make this film to to speak to a lot of my peers and I think anyone going through that's been through their 20s where people are changing vastly and sort of the fleetingness of of youth where, you know, we have the power to really make our choices and go do the things that we want to do. And I think, and, you know, seeing, you know, the character Tyler, as he gets out of jail, seeing all his friends, not living their life after, you know, being in prison for six years for them is, you know, something that to me is, you know, I thought that was really powerful. Just imagining what I would be like to not see my friends for six years from 22 to 28 and how that would feel to see them not happy or complaining when they were so eager and excited to get out of college.
4: So when you were drafting this, uh, you got the idea Did it sort of just pop into your head one day at a Starbucks, or has this been kind of brewing in your mind, a movie like this for a long time?
0: Uh, uh
10: a little bit of both. I think you know what what really stuck out to me was I moved to LA in two thousand sixteen, and I was you know, and I was trying to you seed out scripts and and looking for people to to work with um, because I I you know I financed this whole movie myself as well, and I was just thinking of like what would be a story. So I was sitting at the at the airport a little, a little drunk, um, getting ready to go home for Christmas, and then I was thinking about how my friends have you know were sort of been complaining about the cold weather, complaining about one was complaining about their their car breaking down, someone else complaining about their bad relationship, so I was just imagining like I went and like moved to los angeles to to go follow a dream, and a lot of my friends are are were not like we're making excuses about being in a you know a bad relationship a terrible job and i'm not i wasn't trying to single anyone out per se, but I just wanted to um, you know, I wanted to imagine what it would, what it feels like for someone to, you know, why are we making these excuses? When I know for a fact that, you know, we can all make these choices and changes that we want to do. Um, you know, a lot of people think, Oh, I need a house. I need a, a good credit score. I need these things, but no one, like people ask you how your, how's your job? How's your spouse? But no one ever really asks you if you're happy, if you're doing what you want to do. So to me, I wanted to make something that shows that, you know, we can, you know, you have the power to make your own choice. You have the power to make the decision. I think a lot of people needed to hear that, especially now, you know, we filmed it before COVID, but now that all our everyday freedoms have sort of been taken away, it's, I think it's, we, we've realized that we've taken a lot of things for granted.
4: It's very interesting. What was it when you were doing the casting? I know Katie Gill is in this, and she's great. And her, you know, you look at her, her mom, and she comes from sort of Hollywood royalty, yeah. so she's a slam dunk. But what about Monroe and Chambers? You mentioned as the main protagonist, Tyler. What? Why was he the right choice? You know, I wanted when I wrote when I wrote the script. I kind of
10: thought that I sort of wanted kind of a a you know a, a kind of a scrappy underdog sort of person. You know, I've known him from you know, Turbo Kid and and as well as you know the you know the grassy his character was very much of a you know under underdog sort of um, you know kind of guy and we basically were pitching for the leave you know we casted all the other all the other characters and the director Josh Marble did a who did a fantastic job on the film. He he said, hey here's a list of people that we could get for the role that are that I that I think we could get and he lists off a couple names. The first one he said, though, was Monroe Chambers. And I kind of just blocked the rest of the names out of my mind. I said, That is absolutely the guy, like a guy like him, that I totally envisioned playing that lead character that has to go through that. You know, he's on a yo yo the entire film. So someone that has that sort of range that can get, you know, really showcase that emotion, but not, you know, but not being too over emotional was, you know, once that he was interested in the project, I was like, yes, I would, I would be thrilled. And as my first feature to have, you know, the, the talent, talent that, that I was able to get with Monroe, Katie, and Roland, it was
4: incredible. Well, you mentioned, you know, your first feature and putting a lot of your own cash into this. And what's it like to create this out of nothing, uh, get it on the screen, And then to get it well received, because it quite easily could have been completely dismissed and panned. So, what's it like when you go to these film festivals and everybody likes it? That's got to be almost surreal.
10: Yeah, it's it's very surreal. Uh, My my parents are very relieved because they tried to talk me out of it. They're like, "Are you sure you want to do this?" Um, And rightfully so. Yeah, that's 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 as as they should. And I think a lot of a lot of you know my filmmaking peers were just like, "You're you're nuts for." doing this and I I wanted to do it so badly that I I wasn't gonna you know I was just gonna make it happen so to see it you know I'm so close to it because you know I'm I financed it I'm actually you know self-distributing I'm running you know all the ad campaigns for it I used to work in film distribution so I'm so like married to it that I almost have sort of forgot why I almost wrote it in the first place. Sometimes, so I'm trying to remind myself that, like, hey, like this was your lifelong dream to do this. and Now it's here. So to have it be so well received, you know, to me, it's it's an incredible feeling because it 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 took so much for me to do it, and just from a beyond the writing standpoint. So it's 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 an incredible feeling, and it's and it's and it feels great. And you know, anytime you know you can, you know do something like that it was i was like wow like i, I can't believe i pulled it off because there was so many things like you said like it could have been a disaster
4: for sure <laughs>
3: <laughs> Well, <laughs> like, and I, now,
4: I, hopefully you know go strength to strength now the studios and distributors see that you can do this and so another yeah. project or maybe taking the fall to tyler's revenge
10: <laughs> yeah i mean you know i i i'm really hoping that that i that people can see this and, you know, look to it and say like, Hey, like this, you know, this person was able to do this whole thing, you know, seemingly, you know, by himself, obviously the, you know, the production company that I hired and Josh putting the team together and the actors, you know, they, they make the movie, but in terms of, you know, the follow through of, you know, making it happen with the, with the money, the, you know, the putting it out, you know, the fact that I was able to pull that all together is, is, you know, not to, and not and trying to be as humble as I can was I was like wow I can't believe that that I was able to do it um, cause, and so it's it is it is very surreal so I'm trying to I'm very excited that you know tomorrow's the day because it's finally here I started writing it in 2018 and we shot it in 2019 and now it's you know here.
4: Well, it is here, and yes, we won't be at the you know man's theater because of COVID, but we will be able to get a lot of eyes on it. We all need content. We're still cooped up from COVID. It's video on yeah. demand. Make sure to check out "Taking the Fall," written and produced, and from Longboard Productions and our guest Stephen Hellman. Stephen, congratulations on the film, man, and uh, let's catch yeah. up on your next one. Yeah, thank you so much, Rick. Really appreciate you
10: having me. It was great. It was great chatting with you. And yeah. Um Stay stay safe with everything and uh, have
4: a good one. Thank you so much. I'm Rick Tittle. We'll take a quick break. Come on back. Open lines on the other side. And Ken Burns at 1140. Speaking of filmmakers, come on back.
1: Eight hundred eight four six two one five three. Eight hundred eight four six two one five three. That's eight hundred eight four six twenty one fifty
6: three.
9: Tittle ate 200 chicken wings at your mama's house last night. Now back to Fat Boy.
4: Oh, man, that just disappoints me. All right. Thank you for that. Welcome back to the show. Coming up in the next segment, we'll have uh, Ken Burns. <coughs> yeah, that Ken Burns. Pretty good get, if I say so myself. Now, if you're Stephen Hellman's dad, you're probably more excited about that get. But still, everybody's great in their own right, right? Right, right. Is that what I meant? Right, right. Correct. Correct means right. 1-800-878-PLAY. Um, I think it's time, just for fun, to look at a mock draft in the NBA. You say, oh, Rick, the NFL. Well, we've been doing mock drafts in the NFL for a long time. But just, just because Marge Madness is over now, and you think about guys who had great tournaments and guys who maybe didn't step up and where they where that affects them on the on the board and i was asked was it frank somebody asked me who i thought would go number one overall and i still think it's Cade cunningham the oklahoma state uh freshman six foot eight who played guard but he also can play forward obviously and somebody you know remember everybody always has to write down something bad in a scouting report otherwise you're not doing your job You know, Steph Curry, it's funny to read the reports, dribbles himself into trouble, takes stupid shot, can't pass, not good ball skills, all these things. Well, Cade Cunningham, the thing that I have read that people don't like about him is they question his burst and his athleticism. Okay, shoots 40% from three, averaged over 20 points a game. I'm going to go ahead and take a risk. I'm going out on a limb. I'm going to say he's athletic, and I'll say he'll be first. Then probably Evan Mobley, because he's seven feet tall, and this is the kid out of USC who is not even a center. He's more of a four, really. But if you think about a guy who could give you a double-double, maybe 16 points and nine boards a game, who also can hit from three at around 30%, if it's not him, then it's going to be Suggs, Jalen Suggs, who's the freshman out of Gonzaga, and all he did was make his star shine even brighter in the NCAA tournament. He was going to be a top three pick anyway. But the half court shot to beat UCLA in overtime, even in the championship game, when Baylor just had a crackdown on the Zags offense, Jalen Stugg still showed up in that game. So I think he'd probably go there. And then it starts to get interesting. Maybe another Jalen, these kids today with these names, Jalen Green. Jalen Green was the guy who decided not to go to college, but to go to the G League uh, Ignite. And he was a star down there. He scored 18 points a game. He's a surefire top five, everyone is saying. Six foot five guard. Then, um, <clears throat> I mean, I, how do you not love Davion Mitchell, who was one of the true stars of the tournament? And this is a massive jump, too because he turns 23 and that's considered old, which is crazy, but a lockdown defender, great creator and, you know, scored 14 points a game, six foot two, not great size. I mean, I'm six foot two, but see, I would take Davion Mitchell over Jonathan Kuminga. Jonathan Kuminga is from the Congo and he's 18 years old and he's, Six foot eight, and and everybody loves what he did for the G League Ignite team uh, as well, and people love size, but if you just want a straight up baller, and you think about, you know, six foot two is not horrible, I would go Davian Mitchell, but then you start getting into the James uh, Booknight. This is the kid out of UConn who's a sophomore. He had a shoulder injury and. Uh, but this is a guy who everyone said was a three-point shooter. Well, he was under 30%. He still has, they say, kind of a Lou Williams type of swagger and will still score you 19 points a game. Kai Jones is going to be a top-10 pick. He's the freshman out of Texas, probably the best forward to come out of that program since Kevin Durant. Freakish athletic ability, six foot 11, can jump out of the building but for some reason he didn't score a lot. He's still a project under 10 points a game in college. Keon Johnson, I said these guys are so young. He was a freshman uh, in the volunteers program, another guy who can uh, jump over the backboard, um, a legitimate top 10 talent. But then again, his three-pointers under 30%. So this is why over the years the NBA draft, it's nothing like the, the NFL draft. Then probably rounding out the top 10, a guy like Scotty Barnes from Florida State. There, is a, there was some concern about how good his offense is going to be. He is a ball handler. He is a passer. He runs the floor, um, even though he's a, a forward, six foot nine, huge arm length, can't say wingspan. So this is a project. But he's also a guy who's regarded as a top 10 talent. Then I start thinking about the 13th pick, which is probably where my Warriors are going to end up, you know, somewhere in there. And I think, you know, do they go guard? Do they go forward? Do they go big board? Do they just pick? I always want them to pick best available player. And they did that last time. They would have taken... Lamelo Ball, probably, but I still don't mind the Wiseman pick. They're still trying to decide: do we bench this guy or do we play him out? They said we'll play him the rest of the way, and they're like, never mind, we lied. But if you look at Moses Moody from Arkansas, he stunk in the tournament. He was 0 for 7 from three-point range. Do you hold that against him? Jaden Springer, uh, another guy from Tennessee who uh, showed a guy, two-way guard. Then you get into Trey Mann, a guard out of Florida, who averaged over 18 points a game, also had a 30-burger during the year, if you like. Cameron Thomas, he's a freshman guard, one and done at LSU. He led all SEC players in scoring at 23 points a game. He was 32.5% from a three-point range, four. There's Franz Wagner, the sophomore from Michigan, probably not a future all-star. He does hit from three, though, um, at about 35 percent, averaged about 12 and a half points per game from Michigan. Chris Duarte out of Oregon. He's going to turn 24 years old. What an old man. He's kind of a three and D guy. But I'm telling you right now, when the Warriors pick, unless they pick, you know, if they get into the top three, they'll take Jalen Suggs. but I'm telling you right now, a guy who was awful in the championship game, but the Warriors I'm sure love is Corey Kispert at a Gonzaga, a senior, six foot seven forward. He's known for his spot up and shoot skills. Uh, finished the season at 44% from three point range. As I said, not only the championship game, but Kispert really struggled struggled during all of March Madness. But he averaged 18.5 a game, five rebounds, two assists, and as I mentioned, 44% from free. The Warriors would love to have a guy that when Wiggins rests, they could bring in a guy like Kispert at six foot seven. I just think, you think why? Because he's a white guy? Yeah, to be honest with you, I think that's probably some of it too when I look at, not that they just draft white guys, but you think about Nico Mannion. Corey Kispert is a better player than Nico Mannion. I know they played a different position. Uh, and as much as I don't like the Zags, and as much as Corey Kispert, I think, has dropped into the 20s at this point, I think that's a guy that the Warriors will take. Would I rather have, you know, Zaire Williams from Stanford? Would I rather have another freshman like Jalen Johnson uh, from Duke, Isaiah Jackson from Kentucky? Um, I don't know. I, I really don't know. It's kind of a crapshoot once you get out of the top three really but out of the top 10 but i i just feel like kispert is the kind of guy that myers and kerr would think that's our guy right there all right we'll take a quick break and when we come back ken burns will join us to talk about his new hemingway doc on pbs i'm rick tittle come on back on sports violent
5: Over here.
3: Indeed, knows unexpected growth can stretch your business thin. Okay,
5: those molds need to be adjusted. The shippers are coming at
7: noon, so we gotta get this done. Like
3: at Dennis's plastic startup, to stay flexible, he needs to get started hiring right, right away.
7: I need Indeed.
3: Indeed, you do. And the moment you sponsor a job on Indeed, you get a short list of quality candidates from our resume database. Visit Indeed.com/credit and get a $75 credit for your first sponsored job post. Terms and conditions apply.
8: Receive a $5 rebate by trading up any non-contact thermometer toward an Exogen Temporal Scanner purchased at any retailer. With COVID continuing to spread, nothing matters more than having an accurate thermometer that's backed by more than 80 published peer-reviewed clinical studies, like the exergen Temporal Scanner. Even after getting the COVID vaccine, you should be monitoring for fever to make sure you are protected. Keep your family and yourself safe by trading up your non-contact thermometer for an accurate temporal scanner and a $5 rebate from Exogen, where accuracy matters.
7: Details at exogen.com.
9: Rick Tittle thinks there's a direct correlation between dogs and lightning. Welcome
4: back to Sports Byline USA, coast to coast, border to border, and around the world on the American Forces Radio Network. It's our great pleasure to welcome to the show uh, one of the greatest documentary makers of all time, Ken Burns, and he's here to talk about how he and Lynn Novick have the new documentary, Hemingway, a three-part, six-hour film, uh, which is now on PBS. Ken, you've tackled so many uh, great topics and uh, gone in depth on them, but have you ever done anyone uh, as complex as Hemingway, so gifted, so troubled, so contradictory, so beloved, and in some cases so hated? This guy really was about as complex as it gets, isn't
13: he? It's exactly right, and the the short answer is no. I mean, we've done other writers, Mark Twain, and I wouldn't – take away from the complexity and the d- tragedy and the degree of suffering that he understood still being the most funny person on in the United States. Um, you know, we've tackled the Vietnam War and the Civil War and many, many complex subjects, but I, I've been saying the last few months, you know, it just finished airing and it's now available for free streaming at PBS.org, that... Um, This is our most adult film, and while it does have—I don't want this to be misinterpreted as about, you know, like a uh, rating—it does have sexual content, and it's extremely interesting in that it belies a lot of that toxic masculine myth about Hemingway, but it's adult in that complexity that you uh, raise in in your— uh, extremely on point question because this is a guy his first wife said he had so many sides to him, he defied geometry and that <laughs> is exactly Ernest Hemingway there is not an action that he did in which you are ready to say that is the worst thing ever you know, I've done that you can't find an equal and opposite reaction from this, another side in which you go, oh my god that is so amazing, that is such beautiful writing that is such a generous Thing that you did for that, you know, whatever it is, he is constant. it's like being in a, what seems to be, you know, calm surf and suddenly going, uh-oh, there's riptide, you know, and just being dragged out. And, and so we've been wrestling with this story for almost seven years now, and it is as complicated a, a beast as we've ever tackled.
4: Yes, the rhombus of writers. Um, I, I always find it too interesting when people say, you know, I want to live like Hemingway. I want to be a rena- renaissance man and an ambulance driver in World War I and Spanish American War. And then you say, "Well, you want to be a guy who had four wives and killed himself with his shotgun?" I mean, why is he so still revered? Is it because the writing is just that strong, Ken? It's
13: it's a combination of things, and you've asked yet another perfect on-point question. The writing is superb. He's arguably the greatest American writer of the 20th century. He reinvented the short story. He reinvented the novel. He reinvented nonfiction writing as well. And everybody is in relationship to him. Even if you say, I want to be the opposite style of Hemingway, you're in relationship with him. And lots of great writers today who write owing their debt to him. So there's this extraordinary output of art. And then you have this kind of macho mythology that grew up. He was a naturalist. He was a big game hunter. He was a deep-sea fisherman. He was a brawler. He was a man about town. He was all of those things. But he also invented it so it was bigger. And his prose was so accessible that it could be read by anybody. So if people who had never read a book in their lives or never read a novel in their lives, they may have read a Hemingway novel. One of the most poignant and beautiful interviews, I think, in our film is with John McCain, who as a 14-year-old boy, found a four-leaf clover, went into his father's uh, study, pulled down at random a book to press the four-leaf clover in it, and it was For Whom the Bell Tolls. And he sits down and he reads it nonstop, and, and completely and totally identifies at age 14 with the major character in this tragic novel, Robert Jordan, a flawed man, he says, a, a, you know, serving a flawed cause, and trying to do so honorably. And he's, you know, if you want to know who John McCain is or was, you could study Robert Jordan, the character in For Whom the Bell Tolls. It's amazing. And yet we also understand that this has toxic consequences. There are four wives that he didn't treat well. There are children that at times were, you know, love their dad and at other times were, you know, repelled by him. Uh, he could be incredibly kind to people and then incredibly cruel, particularly to people who helped him. So all of this is a kind of toxic brew that combines with a history of mental illness in the family. His father commits suicide, his own PTSD in World War I, Uh, Him being abandoned by his first love with a horrible Dear John letter, which makes him suspicious of all future relationships. Uh, he's had nine concussions that are CTE worthy, you know, major brain trauma that could produce the kind of depressions or dementia or suicidal ideation that his father committed suicide. Other members of his family committed suicide. You've got, he's an alcoholic. He's a self-medicating alcoholic. I mean, at the end of his life, this is a Shakespearean tragedy in which he is trying to outrun all of these different demons. And guess what? The demons win.
4: (laughs) A couple more questions for Ken Burns about the documentary Hemingway on uh, PBS. Um, On a personal note, how much of yourself do you see in him? I mean, obviously not the, the cruelty and things like that, but I mean, your time growing up in in France and working in England and and working in Italy and being so well, you know, received by the public for your, your, your journalism. Do you, do you see a little bit of yourself in Hemingway?
13: You know, fortunately you want to be as good an artist as him and to tilt towards that objectives would be what anybody would like to be. You really have to admire his discipline, his work habits up at first uh, light and working, writing, disciplined, you know, all the time until noon and then sort of easing up on the accelerator. And we'd like to think in our own work that we're that dedicated and we're that whatever. But, you know, we study these outside characters, uh, not because they're exactly like us, but because their features are exaggerated features that we all have. When he's jealous of, of a competing novelist or feels that he has to be in competing, even though he's the number one guy... You, you see a kind of pettiness that creeps into your own life, you know. The Greeks had a notion of heroism. We think heroism today is perfection. Heroism isn't perfection. It's it's the negotiation, sometimes the war between a person's great strengths and their weaknesses. And that's for the Greeks defied heroism, defined heroism. I mean Achilles had his heel and his hubris to go along with his great strengths. So when you deal and these are big object lessons for the rest of us. Right. You you know, nobody's Achilles. Nobody's this. But but you see in them aspects of yourself. And so you're you begin to realize that all of these big, larger than life figures also help us in a way to center our own lives, to maybe make us try to be better. He wanted to be a, a, a great writer and a good person. And he said, I may not be either, but I hope to be both. And the jury's still out on the good person. It's very contradictory, and the evidence doesn't really support
4: that. But he is a great writer. Wow, very well said. And, you know, there's so many things about him, like nobody could burn a bridge like Ernest Hemingway. And, and yeah. I, I think about the, the story about, um, you know, asking for a, a nice review for From Here to Eternity, which is, yeah. is one of the most uh, scathing things. Basically tells James Jones that he should kill himself. What kind of yeah. weight— and later in life, what kind of weight did he carry? Did people say, oh, don't listen to that old drunk? Or was still everything he wrote just gold?
13: Well, no, not everything. He wrote some really awful... His, his, in fact, I think he reacted to, from here to eternity in large measure because his own supposed World War II novel, which everyone was waiting for, certainly after A Sun Also Rises, and, uh, and particularly A Farewell to Arms, is, his uh, novel masterpiece, was that, where is it? And it was a terrible, it was dreck, it was embarrassing. It had his third wife, Martha Gellhorn, said the sort of the odor of decay, you know? I mean, that's what they thought about it. So so I think he's the, behind that macho posturing, behind the willingness to, you know, go out and fight outside, he's incredibly vulnerable, incredibly sensitive, and on a good side, incredibly empathetic to others, including women. And he puts it in his stories and spectacular ways in up in Michigan and Hills Like White Alphans. Two stories I really recommend. It'll blow your mind that these were written, you know, in the in the uh in the twenties and early thirties and not yesterday. Uh and he's able to put himself in a woman's position. So he's going to confound us. There's never going to be an easy um square hole that this round peg is going to fit into.
4: Well, whenever there's a documentary and you hear that uh, Ken Burns uh, is a part of it, you know it's going to be good. And this is, says he and Lynn Novick's Hemingway, which is now out on PBS and on demand to pbs.org. Ken, can't thank you enough for coming on. Great stuff. And uh, hopefully we catch up on your Muhammad Ali one. That would be great. Yep. Coming out uh, September 19th. Perfect. I'm Rick Tittle. We'll take a quick break. We'll come on back on Sports Bio.
1: That's 877-360-0402.
9: To me, it's like a mountain. A vast bowl of pus. his servants
4: hey thanks for that welcome back to the show a couple minutes left and uh ken burns is good huh the way he talks i mean he's a great orator as well so we talked about hemingway on the show we talked about maplethorpe we talked about ingrateful millennials uh and we talked about uh making crackers out of old hops and barley you know what we got a little sports in there too All right, let's take a look at the Masters here on day one of four, day day one of two if you stink. But Hideki Matsuyama through 16 is tied in a three-way lead uh, at four under along with Webb Simpson, who's in his group. Mark Leishman uh, from Australia now is also at a negative four through eight. Not too shabby to be eight holes in and already be four under. Brian Harmon finished the day at uh, a minus three. And Will Zalatoris uh, finished at a minus two. Uh, Christian Bezuidenhout is a minus two. Paul Casey from England is a minus two. Patrick Reed from the good old US of A is minus two. Jay Im from South Korea is minus two, as is his countryman. C. Wu Kim is a minus one as well speaking of the masters though sometimes things happen in sport which are pretty funny and Roy McIlroy who this is of course the one that is eluding him but uh, the Ulsterman or Northern Islander uh, he got off to a uh, bad start today and then on the seventh green he hit an iron that went into the crowd and hit his dad what <laughs> what are the odds he tried to hook it around a tree he yelled four everyone turned and ducked for cover but his father jerry turned and it hit him in the back of the leg and jerry you know you get a little stinger there he laughed it off and um a uh, couple of uh, onlooker onlookers said that uh, uh, you should get it autographed, and Jerry said I should ask for an autograph, and everyone was laughing. Uh, but uh, Rory not great because that was a bogey there at seven, and uh, four bogeys on the front nine, and he went out in 39 and felt six back of the lead as the time he made the turn. As he, you know, as I said, this is the one Grand Slam that uh, he doesn't have yet. But um, six top ten finishes in the last ten appearances, uh, he uh, yet does not have the, uh, the green jacket uh, just yet. But, as I said, you know, these. whenever you look at these first-round scores, does anyone think Hideki Matsuyama is going to win the British uh, Open? No. Um, but you never know. Um, defending champion Dustin Johnson um not off to a great start uh brooks kepka another guy who's not off to a good start these are all strokes that you're going to have to make up later but you know the way you look at it is if you're really good you're thinking about all four days if you're not you're just thinking about making the cut if you're really good you assume you're making the cut don't you Remember Jack Del Rio at his first press conference said, we want to win the division. We don't want to hear about wild cards because that's low ball. And we're not going to talk about Super Bowls because that's too highbrow. We're just going to talk about winning the division. That's the way he looked at it. He did it once. I'll give him credit. All right. Anyway, uh, very interesting show. Tomorrow, Lou Gossett Jr. Mayonnaise. I got no place else to go. I got no place else to go. Do you get that reference? If you don't, you think I'm weird anyway. All right, I'm Rick Tittle. We'll see you tomorrow, 9 a.m. Packed
8: Yeah, man, I hope we don't have brain damage. (laughs) (laughs)